Welcome back to Health Conscious. This is Joseph Del Santos. Today we have Norb McCluskey from Ithaca Free Clinic, and he's going to talk a little bit about healthcare in the country and how he got involved in healthcare and about how you may want to get involved. And I think it's going to be a great conversation. I hope you guys enjoy. Welcome back to Health Conscious. This is Joseph, and I'm here today with Norbert McCluskey from Ithaca Free Clinic, Ithaca Health Alliance. Either one will do. Okay, that sounds good. Um, we're going to get a little bit into how Norb got into healthcare, you know, learn a little bit more about the Ithaca Health Alliance and what they've been working on, and potentially opportunities to volunteer or help out. So, welcome. Well, welcome. Thank you, Joseph. Thanks for having me on board. First, I, I just want to clarify, um, the, the Ithaca Free Clinic is an operation of the Ithaca Health Alliance. Oh, and the Health Alliance was founded back in 1997, and the Ithaca Free Clinic opened its doors in 2006. Okay. And has been, been providing access to health care for uh, community individuals who do not have health insurance or cannot get some of the services that we provide through their health insurance. They're, they're able to come on in and at no cost have access to the care that we provide. That's awesome. That's really great. Yep. So let's start off by getting into your background. So where are you from? <laughs> uh, you know, how did you get involved in healthcare? Well, um, I'm from a little bit of everywhere, but most of my life I've spent in central Pennsylvania. Um, prior to moving to uh, Ithaca, I was the executive director of a, a nonprofit uh, down in central Pennsylvania, and uh, we handled a number of public health um, programs, uh, the largest being the tobacco um, cessation program that the state of Pennsylvania was running at the time, and we we provided services to 14 counties oh, wow. from the center of the state all the way up to the New York border, oh, wow. about about 8,500 square miles worth of territory that we covered. Yeah. Um, we also were one of the the first uh, organizations in our area to open a uh, suboxone supported uh, drug uh, rehabilitation program. It was an intensive outpatient care program. Uh, we utilize Suboxone in, in medical care to help individuals um, uh, deal with their addiction and uh, at the same time not have to leave the county, not have to leave their homes. They, they, this was a program where they could come in and then they went home and we found that very beneficial. Yeah. Um, and the program's still going today and, and I'm very proud of that. Uh, how I found my way up here was, was through children. Okay. Uh, I have a, a daughter and a son-in-law who both work up at Cornell and had worked up there for a while. And my wife and I were getting ready to retire and, and, and head south. Uh, we were doing that very quietly so no one would find out. Uh, <laughs> and our daughter found out. They, they were uh, in a fortunate position of um, being offered some promotions at the time. Uh, but child care was going to be an issue. And they asked if we could help out. We said, well, we could help out for about six months. Uh, we'll come on up and help you with this transition, and that was six years ago, and uh, we're still uh, still here at Ithaca. We we love the area, we love the people. Um, it's it's just a, a a beautiful place to live in. We're not in any hurry to leave. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing. Yep. But taking a step back, why healthcare? Why did you get involved? You know, with those nonprofits in the first place in Central Pennsylvania. Like, <laughs> what got you involved? Like. What was the what was the spark for you? What was the spark? 
Um, have you ever found yourself, Joseph, in a situation where you needed to access health care and you couldn't? Or you had a family member who found themselves in, 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 in um, a situation where they needed access to health care and health care services and they either couldn't afford it or their insurance didn't cover it? Yes. Or have you ever been in a position where you can't afford the prescription drugs that you need in order to get better or to maintain your health? Yeah. I could probably stand up in front of any audience anywhere and ask those types of questions and hands would repeatedly go up and down in the audience. My, my mother was a nurse. I was always surrounded by medicine. And through the years, I've been able to watch how that whole environment has changed from the early 60s to today. And it's become just a, uh, we've just reached a point here in our country where the ability to access the kind of health care that you need or to engage in preventative health care practices or, or to deal with a chronic disease in any kind of meaningful way is, has become virtually uh, unaffordable. And this is true even for folks that have insurance. I can't tell you the number of individuals I know who have employee insurance, uh, but with that insurance coverage comes a pretty high deductible and some pretty stiff co-pays yes. in order for the employee or the employer to uh, manage the cost of those health care premiums. So you'll have, uh, you'll have any number of individuals here in Tompkins County, in the city of Ithaca, up on Cornell campus or Ithaca campus, anywhere in the nation, who suddenly find themselves facing thousands of dollars of medical debt, even if they have insurance. So if you don't have any health care coverage at all and you don't qualify for Medicaid or you're not old enough for Medicare, what do you do? There's really nowhere to turn to. There's no safety net for a significant portion of the population here in America who fall into that gap. And most of the patients that we see who come through our doors are, are, are those individuals. They're, they're men and women. They're working adults often. Um, they're single parents, uh, they have more than one job, they don't have health insurance coverage. They earn too much to be qualified for Medicaid. They don't earn enough to be able to afford a plan in the marketplace that's usable, again, because of the high deductibles and the high co-pays. They're many decades away from uh, access to Medicare. So they're just really good people stuck in a really bad place. And often, the kind of health care that they need isn't overwhelming it isn't catastrophic but if you're working two jobs and you have two children and you get the flu mm -hmm. and you can't get somewhere and have that treated in in a in a reasonable manner in a reasonable amount of time all of a sudden your flu becomes pneumonia you're losing work maybe you're losing a job yes maybe it's a trip to the er maybe it's a, a week in um the intensive care unit getting intravenous uh, uh, antibiotics in order to try to save your life from the pneumonia that started out as a simple flu and a, and, and, and a $10 bottle of antibiotics might have been able to cure it and you wouldn't have lost time at work. You wouldn't have lost time away from your children. You wouldn't have ended up in the ER. 
with a $35,000 bill. So we service that particular part of the population here. We also service the homeless, those that are um, in shelters or, or couch surfing. Um, we also provide services to a, a, a significant portion of individuals who are from other parts of the world. They found their way here because their sons and daughters are going to one of the universities or maybe they've contracted with one of the universities and they're here for a short period of time and they don't qualify for health care coverage. In many cases, they come from nations where our concept of health care coverage is alien to them because they've grown up in a world where uh, and in a country that provided national health care and they're just baffled. But we work with them, and uh, we, we have had to learn to speak with a number of different languages uh, in the clinic. Um, Vietnamese, Chinese, uh, a number of Arabic languages, African languages, uh, several Spanish dialects. Individuals, again, falling into these gaps that aren't addressed at all here, here in our country. Until we had some um, ICE activity a number of months ago, we saw a sizable number of patients who uh, you'd classify as migrant farm workers. And uh, we, we used to see our numbers actually go up a little bit in the summer as those individuals came in seeking health care. They, they weren't eligible for health care. Uh, in some cases, um, uh, their, uh, their documentation may have been suspect. We don't know. We don't ask. If you show up and you have a picture ID that says who you are, that's all we need to know. We don't go any farther than that. We try to create a safe and inviting environment where individuals can come in and get the health care they need and not have to worry. And, and then after, uh, after the um, several ICE arrests, one which was right in the building next to us, that, that, that whole population disappeared. We had reached a point where we were going to uh, be able to run an all-day Spanish-speaking clinic where... English was the second language because we had such a growing population. And then uh, one or two, one or two um, federal raids in our area, and, and, and that just disappeared. Uh, now we're starting, there's been some time and distance from that. Mm -hmm. uh, and we were just on the phone the other day with some potential partners to see if we can bring that back around again. Um, by creating a, a transportation consortium that would collect individuals who needed to see a doctor, bring them into the clinic uh, on a particular day, and then get them safely back to wherever they're at. How are those conversations, I guess, held, or how did they manifest after following these raids? Well, they they they, they manifest. They take place because there's a there's a there's a defined and and varied. Um, uh, necessary deed for those kind of services. And so we never let it go. We just continue to reach out and work with other partners in our community okay. to find ways or workarounds that would allow an individual to come in and see a doctor and not be afraid that um, they're going to face some sort of federal or state um, intervention. We'll put it politely. <laughs> uh, and, and we're not the only nonprofit that experienced that. You, uh, through, you know, a lot, a lot of a lot of nonprofits have seen drop-offs in those populations. Simply, not because the need went away. No one wants to come into town. Now that's 
dropped off a little bit, and we're hoping that uh, through this summer we can turn that back around again. Because not only do the the, the migrant farm workers need assistance, but often the the, the family uh, uh, families that own and run the farms aren't often much better off than, than the folks that are working for them. You know, it's, it's tough in the farming community. It's tough to make a living there. And anybody who is self-employed has to often make that this, that choice between, do I pay the rent? Do I make payroll this month? Or do I pay my health insurance premium? And most folks will elect to go without the health insurance. They roll the dice and they gamble that nothing will happen. Um, and, 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 and you hope that nothing does happen. Yeah. And I guess in the years that you've been with the, with the free clinic, has this been something that's recurred over years or is this really a recent development? In terms of? Like the ice raids or fluctuations because of federal activity. There's always been that gap. There's always been that need. We have a, we have a fee-for-service, for-profit driven health insurance industry and healthcare industry. And I'm not saying that to, to point fingers or in judgment or say these uh, entities are evil. What I'm saying is that's just the reality. That's the system that has organically grown into place here in America. It's very different than some of the other parts of the world. Not everybody likes the system. A lot of people that work within the system don't like the system. They'd like to see it changed, uh, but that would take a tremendous amount of political will in, in order for that to happen. And as as in anything with politics, um, uh, once once uh, once money gets involved, political will is pretty malleable to whoever has the deepest pockets. <laughs> so it's grown progressively worse through the decades. The ice raids uh, are a relatively new phenomenon that, that took place after the election of our, our, our last president. Um, I'm, I'm hoping that... Uh, those policies will, will change. I, I don't know if they will. Um, I don't have a lot of control over that. What, I, what, what we do have control over is trying to provide the best means for someone to get in to see a doctor, to see a practitioner, and, and know that they're going to be safe in doing that and then getting them back to wherever they came from. Uh, there's a tremendous, tremendous uh, growth in, in personal medical debt here in America, uh, even with those that have insurance. And we, we talked about that earlier. Um, and, and some of it's just crazy. I was reading a story the other day where two two women from the same company, same department with the same employee health insurance, both went in to give birth to their first child, and they both needed um, epidermal. Insurance covered the one individual but the other individual got a $1,500 bill. And when they asked about that, they said, well, the reason you got the $1,500 bill was the anesthesiologist that was working here was, uh, uh, for you, with your, uh, your friend um, was in network. But the anesthesiologist that was on call when you came into the same hospital on the same floor, the same delivery um, suite was out of network. So we're not going to pay for that because that individual is out of network. Same service, same insurance plans, everything equal. One now has to deal with a 
unexpected uh, medical bill and the other doesn't. Something that she couldn't control. <laughs> Something that you have no control over. Yeah. You, you, you know, I, I, I always, uh, I, I chuckle, but it's, it's really, um, I, I chuckle so I don't beat my fist against the wall. <laughs> when, when, when I have a politician that comes on TV and says, we have to have it this way because competition is good because individuals can shop around for their best price. And that's just patently false because anyone who's tried to do that will discover that you can't do that. Um, it's, it's the systems just won't permit it. And you have cases like this where you have, you have no idea. It's completely out of your control. How much shopping around are you going to do when you're in labor? Yeah. <laughs> you, you're just not. Yeah. Uh, so you rely on that health insurance coverage to, to help you there. But it can it it can still get pretty beefy if if you have a health insurance plan that has say a five thousand dollar deductible, and you have to cover that before you even get to the eighty twenty eighty thirty eighty forty split, that is your copay. Well, that's a cash flow issue for a lot of folks. That's a lot of money. So if all of a sudden you need an MRI, mm -hmm. you're paying for that MRI until that deductible is covered or what politicians like to, to uh, uh, call having skin in the game. Yes. Yes. Um, but who has that kind of skin to put into the game? And so you, you have a growing, growing segment of our population that is uh, facing um, uh, medical debt. Sometimes it's a surprise bill from a hospital that um, nobody can explain why, why you're being charged this but you're being charged this, you're just in a tough spot. Mm -hmm. With insurance, without insurance, the system isn't rational anymore. And it's really not self-sustaining. It, it really isn't. And, and again, that goes back to how we, we provide healthcare coverage here in America. And, and, and I'm, again, I'm not making a judgment or saying it's evil. I'm just saying this is how it is. A health insurance company's mission is not to keep you healthy or to help you with your health care. Their primary mission is to uh, increase shareholder value. Well, you that's know. for for-profit. 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 There, yes. are, there are non-profits, so. You show me one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, non-profit, non how can I explain this? Non-profit is a tax designation. And you're not being taxed based on your willingness, your your desire to do good for the community, and you're going to plow the lion's share of any surplus back into that effort. That doesn't preclude you, though, from wanting to make a profit. All nonprofits have to make a profit. Nothing wrong with profit. Mm -hmm. You have to keep the lights on. You have to pay your staff. You'd like to be able to provide your staff with really good health insurance. Um, because they're doing really great things for uh, your organization and for your community and those in need. Yeah. But you you have any number of organizations now that have that nonprofit status, but behave uh, very differently than 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 for profit. It's just there's no way around that. And again, it's not evil. It's just the system. You know, the CEO and the board has a fiduciary responsibility to shareholders to maximize that that, that shareholder value. They go to jail if they don't. 
So what we need to ask ourselves as a, as a country, as a society, as a culture, as a, an American family, is this how we want to fund our health insurance coverage? Is this how we want to provide access to health care in a meaningful way to every citizen of our country? And it's not going to happen under that model. It can't happen under that model because some of us are going to cost insurance companies a lot of money and they only make a profit. They only make money if they don't pay out, which is why when I hit 50, the age of 50, I know that I look young <laughs> and I, I probably could pass for 35. What do you think? No, yeah, I, I can see it. I can see it. I can see it. My insurance premium started to go up at a very accelerated rate each year because the insurance company knew that I was coming into that age range where I was going to cost them money. So I was getting older. Parts were going to wear out. I was going to need things. And prior to the Affordable Care Act, insurance companies would engage in this practice to basically squeeze people off as quickly as possible from, from their insurance uh, plan uh, to avoid that, that, that cash outlay, that cost that's going to come with that individual. The Affordable Care Act put an end to some of that, also did a tremendous value to people who um, couldn't get insurance because of a um, existing condition, uh, pre-existing condition. I, I knew I knew a mother once whose uh, uh, whose husband suddenly died. When he died, so did the health insurance because it was employee employer provided. Uh, she had just been diagnosed with uh, um, MS. Uh, she had several children. Now she's a widow. She has no health insurance. Her children, fortunately, could get health uh, insurance coverage under state and federal programs. That are they're pretty good. Pretty good safety net out there for for kids. Uh, this is prior to the Affordable Care Act, she could not get insurance. Now, she's the made breadwinner. She's the remaining parent for these children. And she's now in a position where not only does she have this debilitating chronic disease, but she has no way to pay for the treatments that would help her manage that chronic disease so that she could have a productive life and be, be the mother and the breadwinner uh, that she needed to be for her children. So prior to the Affordable Care Act, that's the world that we had. She wasn't going to get insurance because her pre-existing condition was going to cost the insurance company money. Again, I'm not saying that this is evil or immoral. I'm just saying this is a system that's in place. And if you understand that that's the system that's in place, um, you can pull a lot of the emotion out of it and step back and say, can we be doing this better? And I say that we can. I think that there's a lot of opportunities, potentially with changing legislation and with kind of the upswell, especially coming from Medicare for All, where people are thinking more and voters want more of this type of care or more resources when it comes to health insurance. So I think that is going to help kind of the issue in terms of what uh, health insurance companies are allowed to do. We can hope. 
Yep, again, we can hope. We can hope, and that's all we can do at this stage. Um, and, 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 and vote. And, and you vote. You have to be active. Yeah. Um, but I can't tell you the number of states that after this last round of congressional elections and, and uh, sort of a, a, a change in the tide um, pushed to bring expanded Medicaid coverage to their citizens under the Affordable Care Act. And the citizens, in some cases, in, in referen that referendum, in the voting booth that said, this is what we want. 70, 80, 90 percent of the population of voters said, this is what we want. And then their state legislature turns around and says no. So this isn't anything that will change overnight. And there's no, there's no magic pill. I agree. I agree uh, well. and, and, and it would take a tremendously different mindset than we have now. We, we really just have to reach a point where we don't think of ourselves as separate pockets of individuals. I, I have employer insurance. I don't want to lose it. Um, I have Medicare. I don't want to see it changed. Um, you don't have anything, but I don't want to pay out of pocket to cover you. We have to see ourselves as a nation, as a, as a family, and we want to make sure that everyone is taken care of and has the opportunity to be as healthy as possible because the long-term return on investment in providing preventative health care up front as opposed to dealing with something after it's reached a catastrophic stage is absolutely phenomenal. Um, Cornell University did a study for us uh, at the end of last year. We said uh, we, we know what the market value of our services are. We know that for every two or three dollars that are donated and expended through our organization, um, or for every dollar that comes in, two to three dollars goes back out into the community in terms of uh, health care access. But we want to know, well, what's the long-term impact? Are we really doing any good here? What's the value of what we do? And they came back. Uh, using uh, sophisticated cost-benefit analysis and models that had built, been built by other healthcare foundations to ask that very question. And they said, well, a year of your interventive and preventative activities at the clinic will return over the next decade $1.3 to $1.7 million in reduced healthcare costs and increased quality of life and, and personal and work productivity to the Tompkins County community. So if our little organization, you know, a couple full-time and part-time employees and 260 radically committed, mission-driven volunteers can make that happen. Think of the return on investment if we build a system that was designed to reach those kind of numbers. We could significantly reduce healthcare costs in America. Um, and, and at the same time, increase the quality of life for, for every individual. Increase uh, not just the, the longevity of their lives, but the, the quality of that longevity. Mm -hmm. And these are all studies that um, are, are based on numbers, based on facts, based on uh, outcome studies. None of this is uh, woo-woo magic. <laughs> I'm not just pulling this out. Uh, that's what we insisted when they did this study. We want to we we know. We want to be able to sit down and defend these numbers. And that's what came out. And they said it could be higher than that. You need to do some better data collection. And so we've implemented uh, some new um, uh, 
data management um, procedures and a, a new electronic records management system so that we can begin to capture those numbers to see what kind of uh, long-term uh, positive effect we're having on our community. Because if, if the community is going to support us, if donors are going to send us uh, uh, money, they, they, I believe they really need to know the good that, that, that their investment is making. And, and it's a tremendous amount of good. It with, truly is. With that, can you talk a little bit more about how the free clinic is funded and then talk about also how Ithaca Free Clinic gives more than just medical services? <laughs> okay, I can do that. Well, we're funded like most non nonprofits are funded. Uh, uh, we, as, as a matter of fact, um, uh, right now I'm, I'm working on our, our uh, county city grant application and it'll go before the county legislature and they'll decide um, how much support, how much investment they want to make in our particular organization. Um, we are funded by the United Way. We're funded by a number of local uh, foundations. Um, and of course the majority, uh, about 50% of our support is grant driven or foundation support. And the other 50% is uh, individual donors. Um, individuals who said, look, we, we believe in your mission and we want to support it. Um, a number of those are individuals who started out their adventure with the free clinic by being a patient. And they they thanked us. Uh, we had an individual a uh, uh, year and a half ago came in, needed help. Uh, we helped this individual, and, I, and I, I'm, I'm sorry for having to be so general, but uh, I have to be HIPAA compliant here. Correct. I want to be HIPAA compliant Correct. here. Uh, this individual uh, needed some, just basic intervention and, and some simple surgery. We were able to make that happen for that individual. That individual went on then, after the recovery period, to start their own business, and he literally came back in and handed us a, a very sizable check to say, thank you. I, I, I am now a productive citizen. I own my own business. I employ other people. I provide them with health care insurance. And, and that wouldn't have happened if the free clinic's doors weren't open, if our services weren't available. And I could go on telling story after story like that. Um, uh, some, some will bring tears to your eyes. Uh, some of them are, are really life and death situations um, where if uh, an organization like the free clinic didn't exist in our community, people... Uh, wouldn't have gotten the care that they needed, wouldn't have been able to move forward with their lives, and in some cases may have outright died. Uh, I don't want to sound too melodramatic there, but, but that's, that's just the case. Mm -hmm. Because the individuals that uh, can't access health care any other way for any variety of good reasons can here. And we're one of the few communities that has uh, an up-and-running free clinic. Um, and that's not my doing. You know, I'm 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 simply holding down the fort for folks that were giants uh, who put this together. It, it really was the brainchild of uh, Paul Glover, uh, who is uh, well known here in the community, um, and and several other local uh, physicians who said we can make this happen, and and they made it happen. 
Now, what makes us unique among other free clinics, makes us even a, a more rare commodity, so to speak, is that not only do we provide medical care, but we also have holistic or complementary services. So we also provide chiropractic, um, acupuncture. Um, we have a world-renowned herbalist, um, therapeutic massage, which is by far my, my favorite. I, I believe if everybody everybody in the world got a half hour to an hour of therapeutic massage a week, there would be world peace in six months. I absolutely believe that. Uh, uh, we work with the New York College of Chiropractic uh, who, who bring their senior students in to do seminars. We work with uh, Ithaca College's occupational therapy program. We just launched the areas, the regions really, uh, only free optometry clinic. And not only is, uh, is, is, are the eye examinations free, this is a full dilated eye exam uh, with, you know, the little wraparound black glasses so you can, you know, go back out in the sun. But uh, we've uh, also, uh, in partnership with the Lions Club, uh, created an optician service where we can provide free uh, prescription eyewear and lenses. And, uh, and, and, and that... that that segues into my, my ability to say that we don't do this alone. The genius of the Ithaca Free Clinic is that we have partnerships throughout the community. The optometry clinic exists today because of our partnership with the Ithaca Lions Club. They said, could we do this? We said, we've got the space, let's work together. They made it happen. So now when you walk into the clinic, we have a whole, uh, um, room devoted to uh, an optometry examination equipment run. You know, the chair, uh, all the exam equipment, better one, better two, and then we have volunteer optometrists from the com uh, community who come in and man this for us. That's great. All of our services are provided by volunteers. Our MDs, our nurse practitioners, our physician's assistants, our nurses, all the individuals that run our, our holistic uh, practices, all volunteer their time to make these uh, health care services available to members of the community at no cost. And, and that's how we're able to do what we do um, without having to spend an inordinate amount of money. That's really great. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Now, looking to the future, um, what are the new things uh, Ithaca Free Clinic will be doing, you know, in the coming years? <laughs> the coming years. Yeah. Uh, I'll start off by saying I never know. You know, uh, I, I lose track of time now with the federal government and all their changes. I can't keep <laughs> up with it. But they, uh, for, for 30 years, they had this marvelous program. You know, earlier I said this, this woman with MS had two children, but they had great health care coverage. They did through a federal program called CHIP. Mm -hmm. Well, after 30 years, the, uh, the powers to be down in D.C. decided to make that a political football, and they defunded the program. They weren't going to refund it. And states were starting to really panic because they really rely on those federal funds to provide quality health care services to uh, children. And by golly, if you can get somebody healthy when they're young and keep them that way, you don't have exorbitant health care costs in the future. 
Well, that started to impact us. We don't see children at the clinic, not because we don't want to, because we've never needed to. We don't have a pediatrician volunteer on staff. And we started getting calls from families with children. If CHIP fails, what can you do for us? And so all of a sudden, because of a, a, a switch in the, in, in the political winds down in D.C., we're looking at, well, we're going to have to drop back here and see what can we do because this, this could end up being very critical. And the area has a shortage of pediatricians to begin with. How are we going to be able to find anyone who can volunteer some of their time? Um, and fortunately, they came to their senses and they, they funded the program. Uh, just last month, they started saber rattling again. And, and they, they want to do away with the entire Affordable Care Act. Well, thousands of individuals here in Tompkins County found access to health care through the Affordable Care Act, either in the marketplace or being um, uh, part of the extended Medicaid services that became available. Uh, and if that just suddenly disappears, now you've got thousands of individuals here in the community that had health insurance when they didn't have any before, now they don't have any again. What do we do? How do we respond to that? How can we gear up to meet that sudden increase in demand? Because we, we're seeing about a thousand uh, patients a year, which actually is a pretty sizable number considering we're only open seven hours a week. Before the Affordable Care Act, the, the, the patient numbers at the free clinic were starting to push towards 2,000 a year. And then after the Affordable Care Act, it started to drop off and then it sort of normalized and stabilized at about 1,000. We're always going to have a certain percentage that for whatever reason are going to find themselves without health care coverage. Um, you know, like a death in the family and, mm -hmm. and you've lost your employee coverage or you lose your job and you've lost your health care coverage. Um, so when, when we look ahead, we look at first, how can we make sure that the services that we're providing now are always in place and there and, and available? Um, which means we're constantly um, uh, recruiting uh, uh, medical providers and, and holistic providers uh, to come on board, share just a few hours a month. Um, it, it, isn't, it isn't a lot of volunteer time, but it's an incredible in, 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 in an incredible service to the community to be able to share two, four hours a, a month, um, making sure that the, uh, you know, the, the 15 people that have shown up in our waiting room are going to get the care that they need. Uh, we, we have been working on the optometry program and the optician service for about a year. We just started uh, back the 1st of March, the electronic record management program. We went from probably one of the last paper-based medical practices <laughs> in the world. <laughs> uh, kicking and screaming, uh, we drug everybody into the world electronic record management uh, uh, to provide better service for, for our patients and to capture that data so that we know that we're getting the health outcomes that we, we, we want for our patients and that we can, we can do a better job at valuing the services that we provide. Uh, prior to that, we started a chronic care program. We had a number of individuals who would show up on our doorstep in sort of an acute 
emergency situation that was related to a, a, a chronic disease like diabetes or heart disease or COPD. And we thought, well, what if we created a, a, a regular program where these individuals, if they elect to join, get regularly scheduled visits with someone who specializes in helping them better manage their chronic disease and not have them showing up in the emergency a state of emergency at the front door during one of our walk-in clinics and that's that's been incredible in in, in terms of uh, helping uh, a sizable portion of our clientele um, better self-manage your chronic disease and not find themselves falling into these acute emergency situations. An outgrowth of that program is what we call a food pharmacy. We weren't getting the outcomes that we wanted, health outcomes. And we talked to our patients and, and we discovered it was, uh, some of them simply could not um, make the switch over to some of the nutritional changes that have been recommended because they could not afford fresh fruits and vegetables. They couldn't afford organic grains. In some cases, they didn't have a working refrigerator. So we created programs where uh, at this point, once a month, we open uh, the whole back room uh, and, and turn it into a uh, uh, basically a large uh, food pantry that's heavy on fruits and vegetables and uh, uh, packaged uh, food items that uh, are, are nutritionally sound. Um, we've recently partnered with the um, Food Bank of the Southern Tier to see how we can um, expand this program beyond our walls. And there's several other organizations in the community right now attempting to do the same thing. Uh, we have a new language translation program that we're going to try to have on up and running by the end of the month called MARTY. Don't ask me what that acronym actually stands for my personal language something or other but anyway it's it's a marvelous program actually created by a Cornell Johnson School grad that will allow us to provide um, two-way video uh, language translation conferencing uh, in 60 languages um, for our for our folks that come in we really we really do believe that um, there's tremendous barrier to accessing our services uh, as a result of language, and we want to eliminate that barrier. We want people to have access to health care. We want, um, um, uh, the new term now is uh, equity, we want health equity. Uh, and, and, and one of the ways to do that is to look at it, look at what we're doing uh, from a cultural perspective. What can we do to make it better for patients uh, who are utilizing our services and for those individuals who may be shying away from using our services because um, we don't speak a variety of languages. Uh, what we love about this program is not only is the, the translator well-versed in what he or she does, but they've also received medical training and they've also received cultural training so they can, they can address the cultural nuances that might come up in a medical discussion mm -hmm. in a language like Swahili. Yes. And uh, beyond the 60 languages, we, we have a, uh, they also provide another um, 190 by telephone. And we'll also be able to provide services for the deaf because we'll be able to do two-way video conferencing in American Sign Language. So we're, we're really excited about that. Um, 
and hopefully we'll have that on the line by by the end of May, early June at, at the latest. Uh, eventually, if the optometry program, the model that we built for bringing that online works, we're going to see if the same model might work for, for creating a dental clinic. Dental services for everyone, whether you have dental insurance or not, is, 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 is expensive, um, but very necessary to, to your health. Correct. Oral health is just incredibly uh, important for your overall well-being. Uh, if you have a poor oral health, it impacts your body in any number of ways. Um, and providing access to dental care is, is, a, is a challenge. Um, because there'll, there'll be such a high demand for it. Uh, this summer, I think the MASH unit is coming back to Cortland. Um, what, what's that? Uh, I, I, oh gosh, I, I want to say it was the Army. Uh, okay. Summer before last, they they brought a uh, basically a, a a medical unit to. Um, I can't remember if it was uh, at, at the, one of the football fields over there, or fairgrounds, or something, uh, but where uh, uh, military personnel provided uh, medical, dental, and veterinarian care oh, for free. And people just lined up around the block. Um, it really, it doesn't shine well on our, our society when something like that is required and is in that much demand. When groups from Canada do the same thing in in the uh, in the private sector and come into major cities in America, and uh, will will provide uh, free medical and dental care over over a weekend or a week, and and people line up around the block. If if you really follow the news and 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 look at what's happening in America, uh, you'll see that our healthcare system and the way we access and and and, and pay for healthcare is really broken. It really is. Um, I would like to see us fix it in a meaningful way. Won't be fixed overnight, but perhaps in steps, mm -hmm. as opposed to having it reach a point where it just implodes. Because I don't believe under the current model it's, it's sustainable. I just don't believe we'll be able to um, pull it off. And I'd much rather have us deal with it than wait till the whole thing explodes and then um, pick up the pieces. Though, that's how most of your European countries ended up with their forms of national health care. Health care, as they understood, it was destroyed during World War II. And after, after World War II, uh, the slate was clean, and they got to start all over again. I don't want to see us have to start <laughs> all over again in that kind of environment. Yeah, that would not be good. <laughs> we're, we're brighter and better than that. Um, and I applaud them for taking the time to rebuild their societies in that way after such a, a horrendous event like World War II. Um, yeah. But I, I'm, I'm hoping, I'm hoping at some point we as a nation will come together and instead of breaking up in the small little tribes that point fingers at one another and say, no, you know, I'm not going to help you or no, you don't deserve help or 
or whatever, we, we see that we all benefit if we're all healthy and we're all getting the care that we need in a timely manner so that the cost of catastrophic care doesn't go through the roof. Yeah. I think that's a good point to wrap up. How can people get involved with the Ithaca Free Clinic and how can they donate? Oh, well, very good. Well, getting involved, um, visit our website. We have a... a, a Which is? www.ithicahealth.org. And there's a section in there for applying to, to be a, a, a volunteer. Um, uh, it, uh, we, we have a number of positions that people can volunteer at. You know, any 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 of the medical positions um, and the the, uh, the holistic positions, uh, administrative positions. We 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 had a young uh, lady who was coming in uh, once a week just to water the plants. Anything you want to do, come down and talk to us about it. If you have a program or a service that you think we might be able to help you build and introduce into the community, give me a call. Um, or visit the website. Send us send us an email. Um, donations are uh, you can mail donations in. You can go to our website and make donations. Again, www.ithicahealth.org. Um, if you'd like to talk about uh, making a major gift or planned giving, again, you can uh, email me at executive director at ithicahealth.org, um, or just stop in. Um, might be better to call ahead. I'm not always on site, and, and we'll sit down and talk. Yeah, sometimes about doing things like this, like doing a podcast, <laughs> which is really neat, Joseph. I got to thank you for letting me come up here and uh, and uh, blow off steam, yeah. <laughs> so to speak. Yeah. Um, it really is fulfilling. You know, we're going to have a small ceremony tomorrow uh, where we're going to um, say goodbye to 25 of our college volunteers who are graduating this year. Many of them are going on to medical school, or they're preparing for their MCATs, or they're going on uh, into Master of Health um, programs. We have, since I've been here, and I've been here just a little over three years now, sent dozens of our volunteers off to medical schools, medical careers, um, uh, public health careers, and even though it's bittersweet at the end of every semester we have to say goodbye to folks that have become very close to us um, we're proud knowing that we've helped them along the way and that they've had this experience and that as they enter into their careers in the medical profession we're hoping that this experience will allow them from within the industry to make changes because they understand the importance of having access to health care and the importance of what we do here at the Ithaca Free Clinic. I want to give a big thank you to Norm McCluskey for being part of Health Conscious. I think we had a great conversation about healthcare in this country, about all the services that Ithaca Free Clinic provides. Uh, I think it's a really amazing thing and it's really great to get his insight and learn about kind of local, really, really local healthcare. And I hope you have a good rest of your year. This is the end for me for Health Conscious. I want to thank everybody for their support. <laughs>